Were you to walk through downtown Boise, Idaho today, you could probably pass an afternoon completely oblivious to the thriving Chinatown area that used to occupy a remarkable portion of the city center. You might not have even known that there ever was an actual section designated as Chinatown in Boise. It's a piece, and a sizable piece, of Idaho history that has been all but erased from common knowledge about the state. My name is Sarah Jarazek, and this is episode three of our Around the Bend mini-series, where each episode, I focus on a sliver of fair housing history in Idaho. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. At the Intermountain Fair Housing Council, we believe and are committed to those words, and to the lifelong goal of fair housing and housing justice for everyone in our beloved community. In order to do that, though, in order to build a beloved community, we have to look back at some of the less attractive and usually very painful moments in our history. Today, I'm going to talk about the story of Chinese immigration in Idaho, and in doing so, acknowledge the treatment of the Chinese by racist white Americans and the legacy of anti-Asian hate and discrimination that grew out of that and can still be felt in the United States to this day. The contributions of the Chinese and of Chinese Americans to the infrastructure, economy, and cultural diversity in the state of Idaho must be regarded and genuinely appreciated for their significance. But it's not enough to just appreciate or acknowledge. We have to actually do better than we have done. And knowing your history, our history, is a great place to start. A quick content warning for this episode, though, because it does involve hate crimes and a racially motivated massacre in slightly more specific terms than we've previously discussed on this podcast. Chinese were among the thousands of miners who came to Idaho for gold, discovered in the fall of 1860 in the town of Pierce. Pierce sits smack dab in the middle of the central panhandle of the state. Eventually, miners were attracted to Boise because of its proximity to the Boise Basin, in which gold was also found in the late 1800s. Boise's first Chinatown was located in the middle of downtown Boise on Idaho Street. The area was a bustling nexus of services and shopping. However, by 1920, the Chinese population of Boise had dropped to less than 600 people, a huge change from the literal thousands of Chinese families that had inhabited the area only decades before. So let's really hone in on this time period. We know from journals and letters from the period that Chinese mining methodology was different from that of a lot of the more European-inspired techniques that were common among white miners. It is debatable whose methods were more efficient, but what's without question is that American capitalists encouraged Chinese immigration starting around the 1850s specifically for their labor. Mining had previously been seen by white Americans as a somewhat more solitary endeavor, but the Chinese worked in larger groups and were adept at a totally different, albeit no less sophisticated, method of mining. And on a community level, they formed beautiful neighborhoods with stores, gardens, medical facilities, and ultimately whole infrastructures that entire cities came very quickly to rely on. By the 1870 census, 28.5% of Idaho's population was Chinese, over 1,700 of Boise's residents making up almost 46% of Boise's population were Chinese, and an estimated 1,500 Chinese people were also living in Lewiston, Idaho. That's a huge part of the inhabitants of the territory at the time. Now, these population numbers may not seem super impressive by 2023 standards, but keep in mind that as of the 1870 census, there were only 15,000 people living in the entirety of the Idaho Territory. 
So the Lewiston, Idaho Chinese community alone made up nearly 10% of the state's total population. Just as a disclaimer here, we need to consider the population of Idaho in the late 1800s with a lot of context, as well as a cognizance for the general dismissal with which government recordkeeping has historically regarded any people of color. In 1870, the whole of Boise County recorded a total of eight indigenous people. And there are a couple of possibilities there. The first is that while more effort was indeed made in 1870 to include indigenous people in census records, we just cannot be sure as to how dedicated reporting truly was to that level of accuracy. And the other possibility, and perhaps the more likely scenario, is that indigenous populations are notably absent in the census because they had by this time already either been relocated to reservations or had not been allowed to survive long enough in order to be relocated in the first place without being murdered by colonizers, as enormous groups of indigenous people were, especially at this point in history. As mining towns across the western United States boomed and busted, another industrial endeavor began to open up as railroad tycoons set their sights on connecting the two coasts of the country with a single transcontinental line. Initially, partly because of their prior work on the railroads that had already connected most of the eastern part of the country, and in part because of the growing racism against Chinese people in the West, Irish laborers were actually sought after to finish the Transcontinental Railroad. However, in terms of difficulty of travel, the voyage across the Pacific Ocean from China to California was actually pretty comparable, and honestly a lot less risky than that of a cross-country trek, even by the most efficient modes of transportation available. Irish immigrants just didn't have the interest in traveling that far for the sake of a railroad job, at least not in the massive numbers that railroad prospectors were looking for. And so industrialists turned their attention to the Chinese. Let's make sure not to mistake this decision to employ Chinese laborers for being anything more generous or magnanimous than it actually is. Gordon Chang, a Stanford professor of American history and author of the book Ghosts of Gold Mountain, says that not only did Chinese railroad workers receive up to 50% lower wages than white workers for doing the exact same job, they had to supply and pay for their own food. The Chinese were also tasked with the most difficult and dangerous work, including tunneling and the use of explosives, and there's also evidence that they faced physical abuse from supervisors. It's worth mentioning that on more than one occasion, and as is with many mistreated labor forces, the Chinese did organize and protest their wrongful treatment, which led to moderately improved working conditions for some. There were repercussions, of course, from supervisors, and the overall condition of the job was never fair or at all ethical towards Chinese immigrants. But the collective power that Chinese communities held at this time was something that industrialists knew about and were frankly very afraid of. Chinese people made up a substantial portion of the Western population and held more power than white people were comfortable with. And some historians believe that that is why the Chinese in particular were literally expelled from the country and so mistreated in the decades that followed. In 1869, the Transcontinental Railroad was finally completed in northern Utah, just south of the Idaho border. White railroad workers and industrialists posed for a famous celebratory photo at the site of the intersection of the two railroad lines. Noticeably absent from this photo is a single Chinese railroad worker, despite Chinese people having been absolutely fundamental to the railroad's construction. In 2019, descendants of some of the original Chinese immigrants who built the railroad 
gathered at the same site to take a more accurate and corrected version of the photo, and to honor and pay their respects to the countless Chinese people who worked and died on the railroad. While Chinese people had very much become integral community members and business owners in the state of Idaho and all over the country, similarly to the hot and cold treatment of U.S. policy towards Mexican immigrants that I talked about in the last episode, the tide of American acceptance towards Chinese immigrants was fickle, and violence against Asian people was becoming a regular occurrence. In May of 1887, 34 Chinese gold miners were ambushed by horse thieves and white schoolboys from Willowa County in Oregon. The crime was initially discovered when bodies began washing up on the shores of the Snake River in Lewiston, Idaho, a few weeks later. Local lore indicates that initially white townspeople pointed fingers at members of the Nimipu tribe, also called the Nez Perce, whose land white settlers were desperate to claim for themselves. At this same time, while Chinese immigrants were being heavily exploited in the North and West, and Mexican immigrants were being equally mistreated to the South, a massive genocide of Native peoples was also ongoing. The stories of Chinese and Indigenous people in Idaho are inextricably and tragically linked in this story in particular, and we would be remiss not to mention the ways in which groups of people like the Chinese and Native Americans have been used as pawns against each other by white colonizers. And whether or not in this particular instance anyone did ever actually point the finger at the Nez Perce tribe, if that's legend, it's still relevant and important to understanding the mindset of white supremacy that is deeply rooted in the U.S. and in Idaho history. Six Oregon men were ultimately charged with the 34 murders in what Gregory Noakes, a retired Oregonian newspaper reporter and editor, referred to as one of the worst crimes in the area's history. Three of the accused fled, and the other three were found innocent in a very short trial for which hardly any records actually exist. The crime was never fully investigated, despite the murders actually becoming somewhat of an international incident, especially in terms of American and Chinese relations at the time, which were already very strained. A year after the massacre, U.S. Congress actually paid over a quarter of a million dollars to the Chinese government, quote, out of humane consideration and without reference to the question of liability, as full indemnity for all losses and injuries sustained by the Chinese subjects within the United States and the lands of residence thereof. Tragically, and as is in keeping with the erasure of Chinese people in the area's history, the event isn't found in any Idaho or Oregon history textbooks. However, the area where the massacre took place in Hell's Canyon, despite the objections of Wallowa County commissioners, was renamed by the U.S. Board on Geographic Names to Chinese Massacre Cove in 2005. In June of 2012, a permanent granite memorial was established on the site to recognize the lives that had been lost, 11 of whose identities remain unknown to this day. The text on the memorial is engraved in English, Chinese, and the Nimiputemt language of the Nez Perce. It reads, Chinese Massacre Cove, site of the 1887 massacre of as many as 34 Chinese gold miners. No one was held accountable. While perhaps no one specific government policy can be held directly responsible for the 1887 massacre, 
What was happening in Congress on the other side of the country at this time was certainly not without blame for the epidemic of anti-Asian, and particularly anti-Chinese propaganda and rhetoric that had swept the country. And that certainly contributed, if not outright encouraged, violence against immigrant populations. White supremacy was always a much bigger problem than any singular piece of legislation. It is, in reality, a problem with culture itself rooted in the very mindset of manifest destiny that led colonizers to North America in the first place. And legislation is a reflection of those mindsets and of that culture. But I think that while most Americans do have some general knowledge of the discrimination Chinese people faced constantly in the late 1800s, there's perhaps less understanding about how exactly it was not only facilitated but bolstered by U.S. Congress and local governments and even small-scale city policies. And there's even less understanding than that of the Chinese government's response, and that part is equally important. And it's also where we will pick back up in episode four of our Fair Housing mini-series, Erasing History, Chinese Immigration to Idaho, part two. If you or someone you know has experienced housing discrimination because of their national origin, their race, gender, or any of the seven protected classes, please reach out to the Intermountain Fair Housing Council today. You can find our contact information in the description of this episode. The Intermountain Fair Housing Council is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to ensure open and inclusive housing for all persons without regard to race, color, sex, religion, national origin, familial status, sexual orientation, gender identity, source of income, or disability. The work that provided the basis for this presentation was supported by funding under a grant with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. The creator is solely responsible for the accuracy of statements and interpretations contained in this presentation. Such interpretations do not necessarily reflect the views of the federal government.